to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Romans 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will for by the grace given me i say to every one of you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith god has distributed to each of you for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function so in christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, thanks, Monica. And it has been such fun being with you all this weekend. Thank you for being so friendly. It's been a real blessing to meet many of you. I'm sorry if we've not had a chance to meet yet. I hope we will before I go. Um, and it's been a real encouragement to hear a number of you thoughtfully trying to connect up what God has been saying to us in Romans 12 to your own lives. That's been a blessing to me to hear uh, people doing that. Let me pray for more of that this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would not just speak to us powerfully into the depths of our heart but that you would give us the wherewithal to believe it and to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my wife Alice's great-grandfather has an unusual claim to fame. A hundred and... 
I suppose, two years ago. He was a lieutenant colonel working at general headquarters in France. And when the ceasefire was set for 1,100 hours, it was his job to send the telegram out to all the armies um, about it. So here is a copy of that telegram. I don't know if you can see any of that. Um, that uh, hangs now in Alice's parents' loo. Uh, it meant that in years to come, when people asked him, what did you do in the Great War? He was able to say, I stopped it. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Well, if only he could have stopped all war. In the 20th century, an estimated 123 million people died as a result of conflict. And Wikipedia tells me that even today there are 60 armed conflicts uh, being waged around the world today. War, I suppose, is one of the most obvious evils that comes from humanity not worshipping God. It's there in that list in chapter 1 that, I, that I, uh, uh, we've referred to in previous talks as strife quietly nestled between murder and deceit. When I read it yesterday, I bet you barely noticed it. So much needless pain and suffering from that little word. And yet it's just one of 23 in that list, all devastating and all flowing from humanity's weird perversity and chasing after anything but God. Now, if we are Christians, then by God's sheer mercy, he has put us on a different track, not to be conformed to that world around us, but instead transformed by the renewing of our minds to begin to be like he is and as a body to love. Morally, relationally, zealously, hopefully and openly, all by his grace. But don't underestimate the don't be conformed bit. If we want to worship God, ours will be a life under pressure, a life of standing out, a life of swimming against the tide, a life quite possibly of real, direct, hot persecution. And we do well to reckon on that because it's one thing to be trying to process what it means to worship God and to be part of a body and love other people here surrounded by nice friends who are trying to do the same thing and, and, and great songs to encourage us and tremendously insightful Bible teaching from the front. <laughs> but it's a whole other thing, isn't it, out there in what is for many Christians literally and for all Christians spiritually a war zone. How do we do that? Well, that's where Romans 12 turns now. What we have before us in the first instance is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome, probably in the year 57 AD. Helpful to know that because what it means is that we recognize that as Paul talks of the problem of evil, he does not do so as an academic from an ivory tower. In just seven years, he himself is going to die in Rome, at the hands of one of the cruelest empires the world has ever seen. And many of the people he is writing this letter to are also going to die. In the years 64 to 67 AD, the Emperor Nero has hundreds of Christians in Rome thrown to the lions or burnt alive. 
And this passage is Paul telling them how to respond. Now, when you know that, I wonder if you would agree with me that what we have before us is strikingly thought-provoking. Four main commands he gives them. First, don't curse those who hurt you. Bless them. Verse 14, can you see it? Bless those who persecute you. It's natural, isn't it, when someone hurts us to think, well, I hope someone someday gives them a taste of their own medicine. And when something bad happens to them, to rejoice, just as when something good happens to them for a little bit of us to die inside. (laughs) The Christians in Rome are not to think like that about the people who hurt them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. In other words, they are to meet hatred and lack of empathy with love and thoroughgoing empathy. A friend of mine, Paul, used to live in a flat in London underneath a nightmare neighbour. This neighbour was noisy, sweary, up late at night. And Paul and his wife had uh, just had twins. Um, Some of us can relate to that. And they were just achingly tired all the time. It was really challenging, therefore, to think kindly of their neighbor upstairs. But they'd heard through the ceiling that this neighbor's birthday was coming up. And so do you know what they did? This is a true story. I think this is amazing. They got him tickets to a show. Now, you might think cynically they did this out of self-interest, have a quiet night in. But, (laughs) But what they were trying to do under the authority of Scripture was to rejoice with those who rejoice. And when when Paul knocked on the door and gave the tickets, well, surprise is not the word, (laughs) the man at the door. That's at any rate what the Apostle Paul is calling the Christians to. Don't curse them, bless them. Second command, don't repay evil for evil. Do what is right in their eyes. The standard we learn in the playground, of course, is tit for tat, isn't it? And it justifies, if you think about it, almost anything. Maybe ordinarily we say to ourselves, I shouldn't have called him a stinking low-life pond scum. But after, he'd what done what, well, after what he'd done to me, well, I was well within my rights. Verse 17 calls for a very different standard, doesn't it? Can you see, don't repay anyone evil for evil. And here's the killer. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Everyone. Which must, if you think about it, include them. Treat them, in other words, not just as you think is justified, but as they think is justified. (laughs) How many disputes over a hedge between neighbours might be solved this way? It is a very high standard, though, isn't it? Something lovely used to be said of Archbishop Cranmer. It was said, do my Lord Canterbury an ill turn, and you make him your friend forever. Don't repay evil for evil. Third command to these Christians being oppressed under evil Roman rule. Don't take revenge on anyone. Leave it to God and love them. Verse 19. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
mind to avenge. Uh, one of my heroes is, uh, he's passed away now, but the Australian evangelist John Chapman. I'm guessing a number of us will have come across him. I'm so grateful to him because he wrote the book that my mate was so helped by a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, I understand that someone was uh, once very kindly taking Chapo around the Houses of Parliament. It's a famous story. He was in the House of Lords and cheekily he hopped into the throne where the Queen sits once a year. And uh, he said to this person showing him around, take a photo, would you? <laughs> and um, his friend, in response, bellowed, you cannot sit there. Paul is saying something very similar, isn't he, to the Christians in Rome. When they feel like judging someone and, for that matter, condemning them and delivering the punishment too. He's saying, you're not the judge of all things. God is. He alone sees all. He alone can assess people's motives. He alone is fair enough and loving enough to do what is right. And he will one day. So you've got to leave it to him. And in the meantime, as for you, get on with loving them, which is what the heaping burning coals, I think, is talking about. The idea is that you treat someone so well that their conscience starts to feel uncomfortable about how they are treating you and they might just think again you don't know that they will do that of course but you let them experience the pain um you might have heard the story that richard vernbrandt used to tell on this i think it's quite a moving story um he was the a romanian pastor um, back in the day when Romania was behind the Iron Curtain. And he used to tell the story of a young boy with a bunch of flowers who went to the office of the commandant of a communist prison camp. And the boy said, Today is Mother's Day. And every year on Mother's Day, I go to the market and I buy a bunch of flowers to give to my mother. But she was imprisoned into your camp last year because of her Christian faith and she died here in your prison camp and so this year I have no one to give my flowers to so I brought them here for you perhaps to give to your wife now that's heaping burning coals <laughs> isn't it responding to hate with love verse 21 is the final command and sums all of them up don't overcome, don't be overcome by evil, overcome it with good. Now, Paul is saying this, remember, to a tiny bunch of Christians in the face of mighty Nero and all his Roman army. These Christians are soon to be wrongly blamed for the great fire of Rome and so quite unfairly hated by almost everybody around them. And he says, your job is to overcome all that evil at so many levels, institutional and so on. Your job is to overcome all that evil with good. Can you imagine some of them swallowing at that point? What do you make of this teaching? As I say, I find it strikingly thought-provoking. The thing is that behind Paul there is another voice for whom Paul says he was just the mouthpiece. He says that right in the first sentence of the letter. 
And that person is Jesus, whose Sermon on the Mount introduces all the themes developed in this passage. And this Jesus is not speaking just to Christians in Rome, but to all of us. And he speaks to us, it seems to me, in three different ways. You might think of them as having three different hats on, if you like. First, he speaks to us as a personal saviour. There is a breakthrough for any human being when they realise that the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact the God who made them, sustains them, owns them. So um, we've got a mission week coming up in our church in a couple of weeks' time. And after that, we'll be doing a, a follow-up course in a, in a pub in the centre of town. And we've got three weeks of follow-up. And the first week will be to trying to communicate this, that Jesus Whoever they thought he was is the God who made them, sustains them, owns them. Now, of course, when we realize that, there is a danger that we feel like our whole world is going to crash in on us because we immediately realize that we have not treated Jesus as our Lord. The way we have treated him is evil. No other word for it. And since when anyone treats us evilly, we know how we like to treat them in response, we can fear that the Lord Jesus is bound to do that with us likewise and to curse us, repay us, take his revenge on us. And in a sense, he should. The amazing news at the heart of the Christian faith is that the Lord Jesus Christ does not want to treat us that way. And he died on the cross so that he would not need to treat us that way. There on the cross, he paid for the sins of people like us. He doesn't repay it on us. He pays it himself. He seeks not revenge, but reconciliation. And something happens to us when we realize that what Jesus did then 2,000 years ago, he actually did for us. Not for humanity in general, but for me, for you, for you, individually, personally. That the evil I have done personally, I need not be cursed for. The evil you have done personally, you need not be cursed for. And the evil that you have done personally, you need not be repaid for. And the evil that you have done personally, you need not face vengeance for. And the evil in you, you need not be overcome by. Because he died personally for you. There is a kind of breakthrough that happens for someone when they're able to connect those events of 2,000 years ago to them personally. So he did that for me personally. He is my personal saviour. And his personal promise to us is that if we trust in him, evil will not have the word, last word on our lives. Goodwill. And because he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits today at the right hand of his father, we can know that he will keep that promise. And that is who is speaking to us today. A saviour, someone who loves us, who loves us to hell and back, 
who wants the best for us, who has our back when it comes to evil. When it comes to the evil people around us, he has our back. When it comes to the evil things around us, he has our back. When it comes even to the evil within us, they are not, this is not the problem that we often hopelessly think it is and have to yield to because we have a savior. Evil is not going to overcome us. Jesus is over going, to, going to overcome us. Do you see how that, if you get that into your head, do you see how that just begins to open the door to the possibility of starting to do what this chapter is calling you to do? Do you see? If, those are, if these are words of a personal saviour, secondly, he speaks to us as, a powerful model. Jesus, of course, is the one preacher who has ever practiced what he preached. And we might remember him on the cross, falsely accused, sorely treated. This is how the people he had taught and helped and healed repaid him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so began a wave of love and forgiveness that started not just a church, but 300 years later, even engulfed the Roman Empire, so that schools and hospitals and orphanages sprang up all over Europe. Evil was overcome with good. It's a story repeated throughout Christian history. The story of Archbishop Cranmer, the story of Richard Wurmbrandt. In a minute, I'm re going to reference Martin Luther King facing segregationism. And in each case, this love your enemy stuff at the time looked puny it looked crazy and yet the forces of catholic persecution were overcome the forces of communist totalitarianism were overcome the forces of white segregation were overcome what jesus is teaching here works it never looks like it will but it works it has been proven by him to work there is a power here it's referred to in the Bible as the power of the cross, the power of grace. There is a power here that if you're just a historian, you cannot deny. And so I wonder, as you read these apparently totally undoable commands, can you hear Jesus speaking to you, not just as a personal saviour, who has done this for you, but also as a powerful model who invites you to follow only where he himself has led. <laughs> that leads to the third way to hear him this morning, which is as a wise teacher. Now I say this because I reckon, <coughs> I only say it because of what I'm like, that as we read these commands, we just think, no way. <laughs> I'm just not going to do that. Not in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I'm not going to. It's too dangerous. It won't work. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Actually, I think Jesus does know what he's talking about. This passage is both wise and realistic. It's realistic about our own limits. Verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus knows it isn't always possible, and it doesn't always depend solely on us. It's realistic for another thing about church. One of the puzzles for people reading this chapter is trying to decide where the commands about relationships in church end and the commands about relationships outside of church 
begin. And we notice that verse 14 sounds a bit like it might be the, the latter, but verse 16 like it might be the former. In fact, Jesus is realistic enough to know that because we're all sinners, even within church there is evil to forgive, persecution to endure, enemies to treat as friends, despite what we might try to do with church membership and things like that. It's not always obvious to know where church ends and the world begins. Jesus is realistic, thirdly, about the need for justice in this world. So, Certainly, we aren't as private individuals and citizens to mete out punishment, but if you read on to chapter 13, verse 4, you will see that governments are certainly to do that, and God's word makes wise provision for punishment. My point is that the Lord Jesus Christ does understand how life works. In fact, he understands how life works rather better than you and I do. But you see, it's because he understands how life works. And in particular, how good and evil work. There is no one who understands how good and evil work better than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because he understands their dynamics that he says what he says to us this morning. So did my Martin Luther King reference. In 1957, Luther King gave a sermon to his church in Alabama outlining three reasons to obey Jesus' command to love our enemies. He himself, of course, was not perfect, but he knew a thing about persecution. Thirteen years of constant threats, 20 jailings, his house bombed, betrayed by friends, ultimately assassinated. Throughout it all, he maintained a, I hope you would agree, a remarkably unembittered heart. And in this sermon he preached in 57, he explains how. He said that, for one thing, we need to know that hate only multiplies hate. Let me quote. Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Which is what verse 21 is saying, isn't it? So that's one reason to love our enemies. Hate only multiplies hate. His second reason, I hope you find this interesting. I find it interesting. His second reason to obey Jesus here is that hate hurts the hater at least as much as it hurts the person who is hated. I suspect many of us have some experience of this personally. Hatred is like a fire, isn't it? If it sits in our lap for long, it burns us. It eats away at our soul. It does much more harm to us than to anyone else. And we are wise if we get rid of it as soon as possible. And Luther's third reason to obey Jesus is this, that love is the only way to turn an enemy into a friend. We should think on that. What do I want for this person who has wronged me? Now, I recognize that in the thick of it, if you've been personally hurt by somebody, what you can want most at that moment is 
a groveling apology and them humiliated and them to say, you were right all along and, you know, vindication. We can, we can want that at times. But is there not a prize which is greater, which is peace? Is that not really what we long for? Only love can turn an enemy into a friend. You see, Jesus does actually understand how this world works. And so he speaks to us today. I wonder if you can hear him this way. As a personal savior, a powerful model, a wise teacher. In saying, yes, I want you to overcome evil with good. Now, we are most naive if we think that we and our children will not be under significant pressure in the 21st century when it comes to the evil that we must seek to overcome. The question is how we will respond. Will we let evil win? Perhaps the most significant way that we can let evil win is simply to stop talking about Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. What he's saying there is that the gospel and the gospel alone can, do you remember the gospel he outlines, it can change God's attitude towards us, it can change our attitude towards him, it can change our attitude to what we're doing in this world. And what that means is it takes people from living chapter 1 kind of lives to chapter 12 kind of lives. The gospel, and only the gospel, can do that. So, to decide to stop talking about Jesus with people is to decide to condemn the world to a chapter one way of living rather than a chapter 12 way of living. It is to condemn the world to evil rather than good and to hatred rather than love. Do we see that? But not talking about Jesus is precisely what we are tempted to do, is it not? It is what the world wants us to do. The world wants to tell us what are socially acceptable ways of behaving and more to the point, what are socially permissible ways of speaking. And in some subtle and more normally less than subtle ways, they threaten us about what will happen if we insist on talking about Jesus. The model for the Christian that the New Testament lays before us is that Christians are to be rather like a portable radio. Do you remember those? Um, with the on button taped down. So the radio just keeps on pumping out noise. And you can move the radio 
And you can try and put it under a pillow, I suppose, but you can't turn it off. That's how Christians are to be in talking about Jesus. To talk about Jesus is utterly basic to being a Christian. And the proposition we need to give to the world is to say, I am a Christian, so I will talk about Jesus. I happen also to be a doctor. Will you let me, being a doc- let me as a Christian, be a doctor? Or must I find another line of work? But I will be talking about Jesus. I'm a Christian, and I also happen to be a teacher. Um, I'd love to talk about Jesus at school, but I will be talking about Jesus. Will you let me be a teacher? I'm a Christian who's an engineer. I'd love to be in your company, making money for you as an engineer, doing clever things with you. But I will be talking about Jesus. If you don't want that, then you don't get me. That is how we are to be. That is the vision for life that God wants as we see our place within his cosmic purposes to gather a people from all nations to himself. That's part of being saved is to find our place in the world. The question is, will we do that? Or will we be conformed by the world around us to something so much smaller And allow good to be overcome by evil. Do you see why it took such a long time to impress upon you that Paul was not writing for an ivory tower? And that behind him stood Jesus who knows well what he's talking about. Because we all want to say, don't we? Yeah, maybe in principle, but not me. Will fear be the ruling principle in our lives? Or will love? See, it was fun yesterday, wasn't it, thinking about love? Gets a bit more real, doesn't it, as the chapter goes on? Let me put this differently. We're all under pressure, yes. Yes, the gospel and godly living is uh, widely rejected. In what will we put our confidence to turn the situation around? And Paul writes, in the light of this wonderful gospel that he says, I'm not ashamed. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Will there be a cost? I think there generally is in the sacrifice, isn't there? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Well, should we pray for a bit? God said many things to us, hasn't he, over this weekend? Perhaps we could respond by saying a few things to him if some would like to lead us in prayer.